after this morning, I felt very inadequate coming to speak at this conference because I discovered that my dear wife knows more about the Bible than I do. I never heard a revelation of this magnitude in my entire life, but I'll, I will share it with you. We like to have coffee in the morning, and uh, she said to me, sweetheart, would you make the coffee this morning? And I said to her, sure. I and then she added this footnote. She said, you know, you are biblically obligated to make coffee. <laughs> to which I responded, is that so? What are you talking about? And so she said, well, actually, it, it, the Bible says that the men are supposed to make the coffee. And she said, there's an entire book in the Bible that teaches this. I said, okay, fine. I'm ready to stand corrected. And she flipped through the pages of the New Testament. She stuck her finger on a page, and there it was. He brews. <laughs> I left the organized church as we know it today, the institutional church, in 1988. And I've never gone back. And the reason why I left is because I was a starving, desperate, seeking Christian who wanted to know the Lord in a very deep way. And in a way I was not getting in all of the different movements I was a part of, all the different denominations I was a part of. I mean, I traversed the whole denominational stratosphere, went from... The Baptists, different types of Baptists, moved over to the Christian Missionary Alliance, some of the evangelical groups, and got involved with the Pentecostals, and then superannuated to the Charismatics, then the third wave, and um, I did not find what my spirit was looking for. I did something very daring. At the time, I had no idea that anybody else had done it. But myself and some other seekers, we left the religious system. We started meeting at home. And our quest was to know our Lord in a way that our spirit was seeking to know him. And we met that way for eight years. And we discovered depths in Jesus Christ that we never knew existed. And we also discovered something called ecclesia, Christian community. And it was revolutionary. It was transformational. And since 1997, I have traveled and done conferences, both small and large, uh, here in the United States and, and in other countries, planting churches that are patterned after the first century. Meeting in homes, everyone participating, no clergy, no pastor. Learning how to meet under the headship of Jesus Christ alone. And I want to tell you something, it's the greatest adventure I've ever been on my life. I will never return to the old ways of doing things. I want to make a comment here about tonight's meeting. Do you all realize that you witnessed to and were part of a meeting where God's people were singing and there was no song leader at all? Do you all realize that? Do you know how revolutionary that is in the Christian faith? That is not common at all. In fact, if you were to go to any church in this area 
on a Sunday morning and you said, I have a proposition to make. Throw out the worship team, throw out the choir director, throw out the worship leader. Let's see if God's people can sing for a half an hour on their own, offer prayers, not prompted by a leader, on their own. I have money hidden in my shoes that most of those churches would not know what to do and would be looking to someone. But it is possible. It is possible for a group of God's people to come together, meet together without anyone leading the show and where every member of that body participates and shares the Lord and edifies one another. It's possible. Is it easy? No. Because we're all conditioned to sit down and get out our bucket and say, give me some. Pour it in and go home for a week and then come back and do the same thing week after week. So we are in a time right now in Christian history where there is a shift going on. I was interviewed two days ago by Time magazine. And it didn't have to do with me playing the stunt double for Bruce Willis, okay? I was interviewed about the house church movement, and I spent about 45 minutes on the phone, and uh, there may be an article coming out in Time Magazine on the house church movement. There is a gentleman whose name is George Barna. He is said to be the most quoted Christian in modern times. He's an evangelical Christian researcher, and he has done some shocking research uh, that has led him to become very unpopular. I don't think he's going to be the most quoted Christian researcher after this year. He came out with a book called Revolution. And I want to read a little bit about what he has said. A quiet revolution is rocking America, though the nation is largely unaware of it. Modern research demonstrates that the institutional church has little to no ability to transform the lives of God's people. It also has virtually no influence on our culture. The Bible never describes church the way that we have configured it. One of the fastest growing models of church today is the house church movement. And then he begins to predict. The United States will see a reduction in the number of institutional churches. Attendance in the institutional church will shrink 50% in the next several decades. Donations will drop because millions of believers will invest their money in other ministry ventures. A declining number of professional clergy will receive a liv livable salary from their church. To some, this will sound like the great fall of the church. And then he says this trend has begun. Twenty million Christians in America have sought fellowship outside the organized modern church. More than two million Christians meet in homes worldwide. Since 1991, the number of adults who do not attend church has nearly doubled, rising from 39 million to 75 million, a 92% increase. There are already 112 million out-of-church Christians around the world. There is, I don't want to say a movement, it's a revolution that is brewing in our country. And unlike all other movements in church history, every other movement in church history came from the top down. This one's coming from the bottom up. It's coming out of the soil. I'll just put it in the sentence. The Lord is looking to restore the primitive simplicity of the first century church. 
And he's also seeking to restore the supreme place of his son among his people where he is the head. Not in theory and not in doctrine and not in theology, but in reality. And he's also seeking to restore the community of the believer. So what I would like to do this weekend is talk to you about the church is seen through God's eyes. When the Lord looks at the church, what does he see? And I will say this to you. If we can successfully get behind the eyes of God and see the church as he sees it, it will change our relationship to the Lord himself. It will change our relationship with other Christians. It will change our view of ourselves. It will change how we view ourselves. It will change how we view our brothers and sisters in Christ. It will also change how we view the way the Lord views us. Which, by the way, will remove the heavy inferiority complex that most of God's people live under. I don't know if you're aware of this, but most Christians live under a monumental headache of guilt and doubt in God's love. Even though we talk about it all the time. God loves us. Deep down inside, most Christians really struggle believing that. And the other thing it'll do, it will radically change the way we practice church. My burden this weekend, and we're going to start tonight, my burden is going to be to go through the New Testament in chronological order, beginning with the Gospels, and to have this one question in our minds. How does God view the church? What does it look like behind his eyes? And remember, you and I are part of the church. So really we're asking, how does he view me, but not just me? How does he view us? And when we're finished, if God is gracious to us, he will open our eyes and we will see his body like we never have before. And it will revolutionize many aspects of our lives. But we really need the Holy Spirit to give us revelation. And let me explain what I mean by that. Think back to the time before you became a Christian. I mean, if you're an American, you've heard of Jesus Christ. Whether you're saved or not saved. You've heard that He's the Savior. You've heard that He's the Messiah, correct? I know before I came to the Lord, I heard that Jesus was the Savior, that He was the Lord, and that He was the Messiah. That's common knowledge in our country. But boy, when you made contact with Him, when you believed in Him, when you trusted in Him, those words had a totally new meaning to you. Ah, Jesus is my Savior. Wow, I now understand what that is. Boy, that has a totally new meaning to me now. Are you following me? Why? Because the Holy Spirit, flesh and blood, has not revealed this to you. But my Father in Heaven, the Holy Spirit made it real. And open your eyes to see this glorious Lord. Those weren't words anymore. It wasn't a doctrine or a theology. It was power and it was life. Right? Well, the word church has been evacuated and emptied of its real meaning. And we hear the word church all the time. Church, 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 we're going to church. Hey, look at that church. Hey, how was church today? Uh, we don't have any idea what that reality means behind the eyes of God. And here's another one for you. The body of Christ. I mean, if we went through the room here, y'all can give us a good theological, doctrinal definition of the body of Christ. 
But boy, when our eyes are opened to hear those words with the reality of God's eyesight behind it, how He sees the body of Christ, and what that means, boy, it will blow your socks off. It is such a powerful thing. I was talking to a Christian not too long ago. This person had been a Christian for 20 years, and I was just curious. I asked them, I said, what, according to the many years you've been a Christian, the teachings you've had, what is the body of Christ? And they responded and said, well, that, the body of Christ is all the Christians who have believed on Jesus. And all of them together are the body of Christ. And I said, okay. And then I said, uh, can you give me another term for the body of Christ? And uh, this person said, well, it's like a body of believers, like a, a body of believers. I said, give me another term that would replace body. Okay, well, like, like a group of believers. They all believe in Jesus. Many Christians have that viewpoint. God does not have that viewpoint. God's viewpoint is so much, so much more incredible than that. So I'm going to attempt to take us through the New Testament chronologically. We're going to start tonight. Then we're going to meet again here at 10 o'clock in the morning, and we're going to continue on. And then we're going to meet tomorrow night here at 7.30 and continue on. We're going to have three meetings. And hopefully, when it's all said and done, you will not only have a new view of the church, a new view of yourself, a new view of the brothers and sisters that you know, a new view of the body of Christ, a new view of your Lord, but you'll have a new Bible. Because every time you see that word church and body of Christ, I believe for most of you it will take on a totally new meaning. Do you have a New Testament? If you do, go ahead and break it open. I'm going to uh, build a little bit of groundwork here by reframing the word church. And I want you all to get real clear on this. When I say the word church, and this happens to most Christians, when they hear the word church, you help me out now. What pops in their head? Okay, a building with a steeple on it. That's the first thing. Okay, what else pops in their head? Church. A service. Sunday morning service. You know what it is. You go in, you sing some songs led by a worship leader, worship team, or choir. You sit down and you listen to the sermon. And you stare at the back of someone's neck and examining it for 45 minutes and then paying the tithes and the offerings and then you go home. We may think of a denomination. This is what comes to our minds. Now, I want to go into a little bit of history very briefly to tell you what that word meant in the first century and when the authors of the New Testament penned it, what they had in mind. The word church is a terrible translation, an English translation. The Greek word is ekklesia. Some people uh, pronounce it ecclesia. It is derived from the verb form. The verb form is ekaleo. And the prefix is ek, ek. And that can either mean out or forth. And then the suffix is keleo, and that means called. If you've been around Christian circles and Christian teaching for any length of time, I'm sure you've heard the church is the called out ones. We're called out of what? Well, we're called out of the world and we're called unto God. That's the church. That's not how it was used in the first century. 
That word ecclesia in Greek literature in the first century and before always meant an assembly of people, a meeting. And it had particular reference to the Greeks in Athens who had an ecclesia, which was a civic meeting for the town, a town meeting, where all those who were el eligible to vote left, not Athens, they weren't called out of Athens, they didn't leave Athens, they left their private home and private life and they met in the town center and they discussed and decided what was to be done in the city because Athens was a democracy. So the translation really ought to be, or the meaning really is, called forth. Called forth to a meeting. And the ecclesia was a gathering of the people in that community and what did they do there? Well, we know they got together in the town and they sat and they looked at one another and they didn't say anything. No, they all participated. It was a democracy. They all functioned. They all discussed and then they decided. And when Paul and Peter and Luke use that word ecclesia to refer to what the Christians do, they are saying the Christians were the ecclesia. They were called forth to meet together, to have a gathering. They met. And what did they do in that meeting? Well, they all sat and watched one person do everything. No, they participated. They functioned. And then they decided. The best English equivalent that we have is Congress. Congress is in session. What do they do? They meet together. They discuss and then they decide. Well, that's what that word meant. This is the reason why William Tyndale, he translated the Greek New Testament into English in the 16th century, refused to use the word church to translate the word ecclesia. He used congregation. It's a people that congregate, that come together. So, whenever you hear the word church, and this takes a lot of time. You have to throw out the idea that it's a building. You've got to throw out the idea that it's a service. You've got to throw out the idea that it's a denomination or organization. And think meeting, think gathering of God's people where they all function and share and participate. That's the ecclesia. It's used 114 times in the New Testament. It always means that. And no Greek scholar would disagree with me. If you go and you talk to a Greek scholar, they will agree with me 100%. I happen to know that for a fact because I've talked about this to Greek scholars who happen to be friends of mine. Having said that, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. And we're going to plow in in chapter 2. We're going to be looking through a lot of scripture in these meetings. Tonight, I'm hoping to get through the Gospels and the book of Acts. Before we read the passage... I want to quote a passage out of Hebrews. I just want to quote it. And if you're taking notes, you can write it down. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. And Jesus Christ is being quoted in Hebrews. It's actually an Old Testament passage that refers to Jesus. And he says this. He's talking to his father and he says, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And then he says to the father, I have come to do your will. God the Father prepared a body for 
Jesus, his son. What kind of body? A physical body. Why? So that he can do the will of the Father. What is the purpose of your body? It's to express the life that's in it. The purpose of my body is to carry out the will of my personality. You know, if I don't have a physical body, I, I'm not going to be able to do much. My personality will not be expressed. So, the eternal Son of God had to penetrate the womb of a young virgin in order to get a body, physical body, so that he can be expressed in the earth. Are you following me? A physical body. He needed that. Okay, now watch John chapter 2, and let's look at verse 19. The Jews have just asked him for a sign to show his authority to clean out the temple, which he just did. He cleaned out the temple very violently. And Jesus said in verse 19, Destroy this temple, in three, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So here we find that all of the temples in the Old Testament, the Tabernacle of Moses, the Temple of Solomon, the Tabernacle of David, the Temple of Herod, all of the Jewish temples were simply pictures of one real temple. And that real temple was the physical body of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God dwelt in his physical body, just as he, in picture form, dwelt in the Old Testament brick and mortar. Jesus says, here's the real temple. Look at it. Flesh and blood. My Father dwells in me. This is the temple of God. Destroy it. Three days it will be raised again. Now, hold that thought. Look with me at John 14. We're going to look at a set of passages in John 14, 15, and 16. And Jesus is getting ready to leave the earth. He knows that his time is at hand where he will be offered to death, where he will die. And he has these very intimate talks with his disciples. And in John 14, verse 18, he says the following. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Okay, so here the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to go, but you will see me. I will come back. I'm not going to leave you on your own. I'll come back. Now, brothers and sisters, he is not talking about the consummation of the ages, where he will return to the earth and restore all things. He's talking about very shortly, after he's gone, he will come back. Okay, now look at John 16, verse 7. <clears throat> but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper or the Comforter will not come to you. And we know he's referring to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Because later on he says the Comforter is the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, jump down to verse 16. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Now, we have two things going on. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go. I have to be offered into death. I'm going to go. But then I'm going to come back. But then he also says, 
I have to go, so I will send the Spirit. So we got two entities coming back. We have Jesus saying he's going to come back, and he won't leave him offerings, and then he's saying the Spirit is going to come back. Now, remember what he said. Three days destroy this temple. The third day it will be raised again. I want you to look with me at John chapter 20, verse 17, and hold your finger there and go to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, these two passages are explosive because they shed light on what the Lord was really talking about. John 20, verse 17. This is the resurrection scene. Jesus Christ has just been raised again. And in verse 17, Jesus said to Mary, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to... What's the word there? My brethren. He didn't say go to my disciples. He said go to my brothers. And say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father. This is after he rose again from the dead. And he's now saying that his disciples are his brothers. And that God is now their Father and not just his. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead. And he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead... It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Brothers and sisters, those are tremendous words. Jesus Christ, when he rose again, became a life-giving spirit. And his body now, raised again, was a spiritual body. And he was no longer bound by space or time. He could pass through walls. Read it in the Gospels. He would just appear automatically. He would go through the seams of a wall. Not only that, but he can be seen simultaneously by many people in different places at the same time. The scripture says he showed himself to 500 people at one time. He was no longer bound by space and time because he had now in his resurrection a life-giving spirit. And what do you suppose he did as a life-giving spirit? He breathed his life, which is divine life, into his disciples and they became his very own flesh they became the brethren of Jesus Christ himself his own brothers his flesh they had the same life in them that he had and then on the day of Pentecost Jesus Christ came in the form of the Spirit not just to his eleven disciples he came to 120, and then, very shortly, that same day after, to 3,000. What did he do? He put inside them the same life that he had in himself. And on that day, 3,000 human beings became brethren and sistren to Jesus Christ, and God became their father. Now, 
If we're going to understand the church, we have to go back into God before time. God had a plan. God the Father had eternal fellowship with His Son, and they loved each other. And God was so taken, God the Father was so taken with His Son, that He decided to clone Him. Do you know that there is a maternal instinct in most women that want to have children? Do you know where that comes from? That comes from your God. God in eternity past wanted to have kids. He wanted to have children like unto His firstborn Son. And by the way, that's what all this is about. That's why you're sitting in this room today. And whether you realize it or not, if you've called on His name, you have the same life, the same divine life that was inside Jesus Christ when He walked on this earth. No different. It's the same life. It's divine life. It's eternal life. Eternal life is not say this prayer and you'll get eternal life. You know, here's your fire insurance. Here's your uh, get out of hell free card. That's not eternal life. Eternal life is Jesus Christ in the Spirit living inside you. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? I'll tell you what happened. The temple of God was sent back into the earth. And Jesus Christ returned. And He got bigger. Because He came in all who called on Him on that day of Pentecost, which was 3,000 people. All having the same life that He has. Brothers and sisters, kin to divinity. And so, the body of Christ, my brothers and sisters, is the real embodiment of Jesus Christ on the earth. It's Him who has returned. Jesus Christ is still on the earth right now. Where is He? If you've called on Him, He's in you. And together we form His body. See, there's only one temple. And Jesus said, this is the temple. But you know what? Later, and we'll see this tomorrow, Paul calls the Corinthian church. You all know the Corinthian church, right? Those are the ones that were getting drunk on the Lord's Supper and going to the prostitutes and all that. He says, you, Corinthian church, are the temple of God. Well, wait a minute. Jesus is the temple of God. Well, guess what? The body of Christ is the embodiment of Jesus Christ on the earth. Jesus Christ is back. He's back. He's come back inside His people. Now, that is revolutionary if you were to get behind the eyes of God and see it. Because when God looks at His people together, He sees His Son back on the earth. The head is in heaven, but the body is on earth. Okay, now that is the introduction. Now look at John 15. This passage ought to have a new light for you now. John 15, very popular passage. Verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now remember when Jesus was on the earth, he said, apart from my Father, I can do nothing. Well, the passage moved from the Father to Jesus, to Jesus and you and I. And here he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, go out and take a look at a tree. I have one question for you. Are those branches part of that tree? Or are those branches an appendage 
added on to that tree? You tell me. It's part of the tree. In fact, it would be very difficult to separate where the branch ends and the tree starts and where the tree ends and the branch starts. It's part of the same entity. The body of Christ is his body. When Jesus was walking on the earth, you couldn't separate his body from him. If you did, what would happen? His life would go out. You cannot separate my body from me. You cannot separate the body of Christ from Jesus Christ. Head and body are connected by life. You can't separate the branch from the tree. They're connected by life. And here Jesus is saying this revolutionary truth that it's all in the context of him leaving. And he's saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You're part of me. Look at Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ the Son of a living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed it to you. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, if you're a good Catholic, you believe that Peter is the rock that Jesus is referring to. I don't believe that. But it is interesting to know what Peter's name means. Who can tell us? Who's a Bible scholar in here? Who can tell us what does Peter mean in Greek? It means rock. It's Petros. And it means little rock. Stone. And Jesus says to Peter, he called him that, he said, Peter, my father revealed this to you. And then he said, upon this rock, Petra, Huge boulder. And Jesus Christ is called the rock. He's the rock of offense. He's the stone that the builders rejected. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. Now what is the church built upon? The church is built upon a revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. So upon this rock, upon me, I will build my church. But Peter, you're a little stone. It is fascinating to me to know that many years later, Peter is writing to Jews scattered all over the Roman Empire because of persecution. And he says, you together are living stones built together to form the Lord's temple, his house. Where did those stones come from? They came off of the big rock. They were chips off the large rock. And he, the rock, is the temple of God. But we, together, are the temple of God. He is the rock. And we are little rocks together that make up a big rock. Brothers and sisters, God does not distinguish between Jesus Christ and the church. The two are inseparable. You cannot separate my head from my body. It's part of me. And you can't separate Jesus Christ from His church. 
And you can't separate divine life from divine life. This is good theology, but to actually see it is a different thing. Brothers and sisters, it's all over the New Testament. It's everywhere. We're just starting out here. It's all over the New Testament. Those of you who hang with me, by the end of the weekend, we'll see this. And it will be revolutionary. Now let's move to the book of Acts. And by the way, if you want that reference uh, in Peter, it's 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 6, where he says, We are living stones built together to form the Lord's house. Okay, look with me at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Now we have Jesus Christ who has ascended into heaven. The head of the church, the head, is in heaven. But after Pentecost, his body was raised again because he's a life-giving spirit. His body is now on the earth. So the head is in heaven, but the body is on earth. But the two cannot be separated. They're joined by divine life. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This is a passage that is often missed. Luke is writing, and by the way, if, you, if you're not aware of this, Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, also wrote Acts. And here's what he says. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, and on and on. Now he's writing to the same person. He's writing to a Gentile named Theophilus. And if you read the, the opening of Luke, he says, Theophilus, it seemed good to me to give you a report on Jesus' earthly life. Now he says, he's introducing the book of Acts. He's explaining what the book of Acts is. Now watch this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, that is the book of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach began to do and teach. The book of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach. But wait a minute. The book of Luke follows his whole life up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. That's right. But in Luke's mind, the book of Luke, from his birth to his death and resurrection, is what he began to do and teach. Began. What's the book of Acts? It's what he continued to do and teach. How is that? He's in heaven. He did it through his body on earth. Amen. When you read the book of Acts, you know what you're reading? You're reading a record of the physical body of Jesus Christ on the earth through a spiritual body. You're watching the temple of God on the earth teaching and doing when you read the book of Acts, you are watching Jesus Christ in corporate expression through his body preach to the Jews, teach the Jews. You're watching Jesus Christ through his body bring the gospel to the Gentiles, raise up corporate expressions of himself all over the Roman Empire. You are watching the continuation of Jesus Christ through his body. Are you following this? That is powerful, brothers and sisters. And guess what? Jesus Christ is still on the earth. Because his body is still here. And you cannot separate his body from himself. He doesn't separate his body from himself. 
In fact, I didn't turn you there, but if you write this down, Matthew 25, we won't look there. I'll just quote it. I think you all know what I'm talking about when I quote it. But Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40, we won't turn there. Jesus is talking about the very end of the ages. And there's a judgment going on. And do you remember he talks to those who come before him and he says, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in jail, you visited with me. And then they said, When did we do that, Lord? And then he turned around and he uttered these explosive words. When you did it to the least of those, my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus Christ does not distinguish himself from his body. He doesn't. And through the eyes of God, when he sees the body of Christ, you know what he sees? He sees his beloved son. Now the implications of that are dramatic. But if you just pause and let it marinate just for a second, it explains why Jesus could say in John 17, Father, you love them just as you love me. Why? Because they are part of me. That ought to make you feel real good when you're lonely and down and it's a terrible night. Just to remember that God loves you the same way He loves Jesus because He does not distinguish you from being a part of His own body. Chapter 11, verse 24. He's talking about Barnabas. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now, if, if you have a New American Standard, there's a number two there. And if you look at the number two, anybody see what that says in... Uh, Verse 24, added to the Lord. Added to the Lord. When people came to Christ, when people came into the church, they were added to the Lord. Added to the Lord. If the church is the body of Christ, then that makes perfect sense. Because what it shows is that every time a soul comes to Christ and receives his life, they're added not just to the church, they're added to the Lord. Because the church and the Lord share one life. When people come to Christ year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, you know what's happening? Jesus Christ is getting larger. And that will continue to happen until the point where Ephesians says, and he will fill all things. And that's where this is all headed. It's all headed to where Jesus Christ becomes all in all. And that's what the Father wants. The Father wants many sons, many daughters that reflect his firstborn son. He wants a huge family. Your God wanted to have kids. And the fellowship that he had with his son, he wanted to extend and enlarge that. Now, it gets better. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. We're still in Acts. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. This is Saul of Tarsus, who later will become Paul. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, 
except the apostles. Now, here we have the first mention of the church at Jerusalem. And I want you to notice something. Throughout the entire New Testament, the church in every city never takes a name. You know, you'll never find first so-and-so church in the New Testament. Every church took the name of the city. And it wasn't even a name. It was a description. And you know what they were saying? They were saying, this is the ecclesia, the meeting of the people of God in this city. But I have a better definition for you that I think you will see very clearly in a minute. The church in Jerusalem, do you know what that really was? It was Christ in Jerusalem. If you were in Jerusalem and you wanted to find Jesus Christ, do you know where you went? You went to the church because that's where he was. He lived in those people. He's back on the earth. He has a body that's been raised again from the dead and it's getting larger and larger and larger. He does not separate himself from his people. He's one with his church. It's his body. Just like my body's part of me. I don't separate Frank from his body. You do that, I'm not going to be in a good shape. I will cease to exist. You can't separate Jesus Christ from His church. And if you don't believe me, let's find out what happened when Paul was going to Damascus. Acts 9, verse 2. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to synagogues at Damascus, so that if they found any belonging to the way, meaning the Christians, because they had a certain way of life, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Nobody has a translation that says my church. What does it say? What does that tell you, sister? Wait a minute. Paul was persecuting the Christians in Damascus. Paul was persecuting the church in Damascus. Not according to the mind of the Lord. He was persecuting him. Jesus Christ said, you're persecuting me. In other words, God does not distinguish between himself and the church. In the eyes of God, the church is Christ. The church is the corporate Christ on the earth. And if you touch one of the church's members, you touch Jesus Christ. He does not separate himself from the church. Now, brothers and sisters, that's good news. Do you know why? Because you in this room are part of Jesus Christ. And God the Father sees you no different than he sees his Son. Amen. That alone, if I just can take that, and believe it, that's going to cure a lot of my inferiority complexes and my insecurities. Because I'm part of Jesus Christ. But you know what else that says to us? Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, desires expression. He desires expression. He wants to be free to move and to speak. Well, what happens if you take my physical body and you chain me to this chair? And then you put duct tape around my mouth. And you say, Frank, you listen. Don't say anything, just listen. 
Am I going to be able to express my personality chained to a chair? I have to be set free. My body has to be set free. I have to be free to function. My members have to be free to move. My mouth has to be free to, to speak. And brothers and sisters, the whole reason why Jesus Christ wanted a body, the whole reason why the Father prepared a body for Jesus Christ when He was on this earth was so that the Son of God can express His life in the earth and manifest His Father. Well, guess what? It's the same reason why He ascended on high and became a life-giving spirit and came back into the earth through His body so that He can be expressed. Well, what happens if you take the church and you chain it to a pew and you muzzle its mouth? Jesus Christ cannot be freely expressed. So when you go to church on Sunday morning, you are not watching the body of Christ function. You know what you're watching? You're watching one little member. One little member of His glorious body. Or maybe two members. The worship team and the pastor. But brothers and sisters, in the first century, if you went to a church meeting, they didn't call it services, they called it the meeting, the ecclesia. If you went there, you know what you would see? You would see a group of people, all of whom were functioning and sharing and speaking and displaying the Lord Jesus Christ, the life that was in them. And that's what turned the Roman Empire on its ear. Because people would see this group of mostly former pagan heathens having joy and life and singing and sharing and they all were functioning and it blew their minds. You, sister are part of Jesus Christ and you have a part of Him to share with the rest of the body. And you have a part of Christ to share with the rest of the body because you're part of Him. And you have a part to share. But so does she. So do you. And even you have a part to share. I know it's questionable, but really... Brothers and sisters, you have not lived, and most of us have never witnessed this, you have not lived until you've walked into a room and saw God's people set free. Where they are functioning without a human head, but under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, through His body, through every member functioning and sharing that life that's in them. That's the church that's the body of Christ. That's the ecclesia. Not the spectator event down the street. And that's what it is. You're a member of a living, breathing body that Jesus Christ wants to express Himself through. And what happens? You are chained, muted, passive in a pew watching a show. All I'm saying, don't read anything else into it, is that we have strayed far, far, far from what the church was in the first century. And God's heartbeat is to have His Son expressed in the earth again. And the only way that will happen is if she is let loose. And I'm talking about she, the body of Christ. Because she's also the bride of Christ. But the bride of Christ is not the topic of this conference. It was the topic of a conference that I held in March. 
It was the bride of Jesus Christ and the passionate love that he has for his fiance that he's had from the beginning of time. And this conference is actually the sequel to that first conference. Jesus Christ does not distinguish himself from the church. God the Father, when he looks at the church on earth, he sees the very body of his son, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Your Lord wants to be expressed. And do you know what else? He designed it this way. Because you as a Christian, you as a Christian will never see Christ in fullness until you are with a body of believers where he is being expressed through every member. And most Christians today, you know what their spiritual life and their spiritual nourishment is based on and determined by? One man, one member of the body, all of his knowledge, all of his research, all of his experience, they are dependent on that one person. That's like me trying to live off my pinky. I need this whole body to function, to nourish myself. And it's the same way. You as a Christian will die on the vine if you are basing your entire spiritual nourishment on one person. It's not meant to be that way. We are to receive from our Lord from every member. But it takes a functioning body that's been set free. This is my introduction. I have not even gotten started, folks. This is my introduction. You wait until Paul lifts the veil back and he starts showing you Christ through his church. It's mind-boggling. And it all began in that initial revelation. He had that incredible encounter with Jesus Christ. And what did he see? He saw the head in heaven and the body on earth that he had been persecuting. And he saw that they were connected. They were one. Because Jesus said, you're persecuting me. That's me. That's me. Sister, someone touches you. They touch Jesus Christ. Someone touches you, brother, they touch Jesus Christ. Because we're members of his body. And that's not a mystical, theoretical, theological, doctrinal statement. We are his body. Period. Praise the Lord. That's good news. But you have not heard anything yet. You really have not heard anything. I would like to give you all an exercise to do before you go to bed tonight. This is something you'll do individually. I would like you to, before you go to sleep, and if you are just so tired you cannot keep your eyes open, then do it in the morning before the meeting, okay? We'll let you cheat on this one. I want you to turn to John 17 in your Bible, not right now, tonight or tomorrow. John 17, verses 13 to 26. 13 to 26. John 17, 13 to 26. Okay? Jesus is having a very intimate uh, time of fellowship with his Father, and he is interceding for his Father's deepest purposes as it comes to his disciples. But Jesus is not just praying for his 12 disciples, he's praying for you and me because he says to the Father, Father, I'm not just praying for these, the 12. I am praying for all who will come to me through their word. Did you come to Jesus Christ through the word of the apostles? You bet you did. 
Yeah, but my grandmother led me to the Lord. Well, guess what? She heard the gospel. If you trace it back, it came from the apostles. Okay? So you're included in that prayer. Here's what I want you to do. Read it. But every time the Lord uses the words them or they or their, change it to my body. And remember that you are a part of his body. Change it to my body. The only time you won't do that is when you get to verse 20. When you get to verse 20, just read it like it is. But after that, and before that, my body. Just read it that way and contemplate what you heard tonight.